Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series in the book of Genesis, The Unseen Hand of God, with a message entitled, Am I My Brother's Keeper? So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 37, 12 to 36, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. for all my life had a wonderful relationship with my earthly brother. He's definitely one of my best friends. It's a great blessing. You know, in this sad world, you know, brothers who love each other is not always the case. There are many times when the dysfunction in a given family is so great that it creates a lifetime of wreckage. Of course, the phrase, am I my brother's keeper? Well, it comes to us from Genesis 4 verse 9. Cain has just murdered his brother and God comes to him asking about his brother. In response, Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? That is, am I responsible for my brother's whereabouts? I mean, if he goes missing, it's none of my concern. And that brings up this matter. What is our relationship to our brother or sister, or even to our brother and sister in Christ, or for that matter, what's our accountability for those whom we don't even know? Is there a situation or are there troubles any of our concern? You might be aware of James chapter 2, 15 to 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? The point, of course, is that we do have a responsibility for for those who are in need, and, and that to neglect the cry of the poor is wickedness. I know there are many who argue that the poor have placed themselves in that situation by their own bad choices, something like that, and and so they're rightfully getting what comes to them from bad choices. But if you haven't heard it yet, listen to the very heart of the gospel. God, through Jesus, has offered us grace. It's a most expensive grace that came from the cross of the suffering of his son. And what's more, we didn't deserve it. Indeed, our own sins, our own bad choices, from that we deserved wrath. Grace is receiving what we didn't deserve. Now, we've started a study of the life of Joseph. He is the 11th of 12 brothers. He's dad's favorite, and the rest of the brothers absolutely despise him. So, let's take our text and read Genesis 37, verses 12 to 17. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. There are several features about this account that we should notice. The first is that, as we saw yesterday, there was a rank hatred from the brothers toward Joseph. It seems clear to me that Jacob, or as he's called here, Israel, well, he's not even aware of the problem. Perhaps he hasn't been paying attention to a a growing storm in his family. But why does Jacob want Joseph to go and find them? I mean, after all, there are, we assume, 10 of them out there. And I would also assume they know how to take care of themselves. They've certainly proven that in the past. But here it gets interesting. The 10 brothers have taken their flocks to Shechem. And we know that just two years earlier, two of those brothers, Simeon and Levi, had killed every male in an entire city. 
and that's because the prince of that city had raped their sister. And I have no doubt that Jacob is worried. I mean, how many people in that area are looking for revenge for the sack of that city? Well, he doesn't know, but he's concerned. But there's another question. Why isn't Joseph, who's certainly old enough to perform work on his own, why isn't he there with his brothers taking care of the sheep with them? What's he doing at home while everyone else is out working? And I assume that the answer is that Joseph is the favorite. And if the brothers are taking care of the sheep far from home and it's dangerous territory, well, Jacob wants Joseph to be safe. And clearly, he's prepared to take more risk with the other 10 brothers than with this one. But then Jacob gets worried and he does send Joseph. And Joseph goes and, and he had to walk about 80 kilometers to get to Shechem. He doesn't know exactly where his brothers are and you have to assume that he's asking everyone. And then as he's walking in a field, a man finds him and tells him, well, they're in Dothan. It's another 20 kilometers away. And so imagine now if if you're some 100 kilometers from your home and you're on foot, it's a long way to walk. So let's continue to read Genesis 37 verses 18 to 24. They saw him from afar and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands. Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that that the reason why the brothers recognized Joseph from a distance was because he was wearing the coat that his father had given him. Indeed, it seems to me that the coat itself became the very center of their animosity. And when they see their brother so far from home and so far from their father's protection, well, the reaction's immediate. Here comes the dreamer. And the literal Hebrew reading here is, here is the master or the the Lord of the dreams. It's a sarcastic statement. They're still in a rage about the dreams he's had in which he believes that one day his brothers are going to bow to him. There's an irony here. You know, later on, Joseph is going to interpret dreams for, well, the chief cupbearer and then the chief baker, and that's going to eventually lead him into interpreting dreams for Pharaoh himself. And not only does he interpret Pharaoh's dreams, but he also knows what Pharaoh should do because of the dreams. And that's to say, Joseph not only understands the spiritual realm, but he's able to discern the voice of God in it. He knows how to implement a course of action based upon what God has shown him. So even while his brothers mock him, here's the Lord of the dreams, he is in fact the Lord of the dreams. The brothers don't even have the slightest clue in the world as to what God is doing in their brother's life. You know, hatred does that. It blinds the one who hates. The man or a woman who despises another is is never, never able to see the grace of God in the life of that other person. That's the tragedy. The one who hates, the one who contemplates murder, is already doing great damage to himself or to herself. (laughs) The brothers see only one thing, murder. Let's murder him. Let's tell dad an animal killed him. 
And now inexplicably, Reuben, the oldest, steps forward. Now, a little background is called for. You know, back in Genesis 35, verse 22, we read there, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. It's a horrible act. In Israel's mind, that that took the oldest out of contention for the family leadership. He would never consider Reuben again. And it would seem that in the mind of Israel, Reuben's not the leader. Joseph's the leader. When he's gone, the family will answer to him. See, it seemed to me then that, that the leader in this plot to murder Joseph, it should have been Reuben. He had the most to lose. But just when we think that he's going to lead the plot to kill him, instead, he tries to save him. I know. We could criticize him even here. We could say, well, now, he doesn't lead at all. Why doesn't he just step in and stop the madness? But remember, these brothers are tough. These brothers are cruel, and they kill quickly. They've done so in the past. And so Reuben, in effect, is looking to trick them, get them to throw Joseph into a pit. You know, some have suggested that the pit was probably a dry cistern, and it was used by sheep farmers to water their flocks, but now it hasn't been used for a time, and it's completely dry. And and if that's the case, it would have had a very narrow opening, and then underneath the opening, it would have opened up into a, a large cavern underneath. And if that was the case, Joseph really could never have gotten out by himself. And the brothers might have said, fine, We won't be guilty of murdering him. Joseph won't technically die by our hands. He's going to die of thirst. He's going to be trapped in that cistern. But Reuben wants to save him, and we wonder if he has thought the matter through. Perhaps he has. What would they do to Reuben when they found out he tricked them? Would they then turn on him? Well, it seems to be that, that Reuben is willing to risk his life for Joseph. Turns out, Reuben is his brother's keeper. Clearly, Reuben exhibits some extraordinary courage here. And clearly, we're given a snapshot of a murderous and a cruel family. They need a savior. And it just so turns out that the man they've just thrown into the pit will be exactly that savior for them in the future. From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and now confirmed special friends and musicians Shane and Angela Weeb. I guarantee you'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, you'll laugh and be encouraged, and you'll enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. The Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Caribbean Cruise is a unique opportunity for connection, and we'd love to see you join us. Come on your own or with family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call, everything the ship has to offer, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. We left off with Joseph in the bottom of a pit, so let's carry on in the account, Genesis 37, 25 to 30. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, 
on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? The dethroned Joseph is stripped of his coat, and he's lying at the bottom of a cave. He's waiting his fate. And meanwhile, up above, the brothers without Reuben sit down to eat and to talk. Now, before I go on, just a small note of explanation is in order. More than one Bible student has noticed that at the first, the caravan coming down from Gilead are called Ishmaelites. And then later in verse 28, they're called Midianites. So then which are they? Well, there's an easy answer to that. Ishmael was the son of Abraham. And according to Genesis 25, verse 18, the descendants of Ishmael settled in the territory just north of Egypt. Now, Midian was also the son of Abraham from his wife Keturah. That's the wife that he married after Sarah had died. Now then, the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Midian intermarried. And furthermore, some scholars have argued that the term Ishmaelite ended up becoming a general and all-encompassing term for nomadic travelers, and the term Midianite was an ethnic term for a people group. So that explains why the brothers first refer to the caravan as the Ishmaelites, and, and that's because they're nomads. It's only when they come closer that they discover that they are, in fact, Midianites. Well, in later days, the Midianites would continue to intermarry with all sorts of other people groups, and they would form political alliances with them so that by the time we come to a man named Gideon, the Midianites would become a very powerful confederation of tribes. Now, I say all of that simply because in the past, some liberal Bible scholars have claimed that this passage actually brings together two conflicting accounts. See, one being that Joseph was sold to the Ishmaelites and the other being that he was sold to the Midianites. But now as we find more out about the Middle East, it turns out the Bible knows a great deal more about the people of the ancient world than most modern liberal scholars who seem ready to, you know, to discredit the biblical account at a moment's notice. Right, let's get back to our account. There's a caravan of traders, and they're in fact, and this is crazy, but these people are distantly related to these brothers, and they're coming through. But here, we should notice that a second brother breaks ranks. It's Judah, and he will come up a number of other times in this story. He also doesn't wish to murder his brother. Does he just want to make money, or, or, or is he genuine? Like Reuben, does he want to save his brother's life? My sense is he genuinely wants to save his brother. He also, like Reuben, will attempt to be his brother's keeper. And all of this makes us contemplate the effect of leadership on people. See, there are all sorts of stories of cruelty and murder, all due to evil leadership. People who would never have done so under any other circumstances, suddenly become powerless, and they lack courage when the pressure of a strong leader is put on them. Evil leaders can create evil people. Well, at any rate, Judah's counsel seems good to the rest. Let's get some money out of this kid. And so they get 20 shekels of silver for him. Now, is that a lot? You know, from my understanding, that was the average price in ancient Babylon for a male slave. So I think they just simply got market value for him. Again, we'll have to stop and consider. 
You know, later on, during the time of Moses, when the law was given, this matter of selling someone to slavery was utterly condemned. Deuteronomy 24 verse 7 says, If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. You shall purge the evil from your midst. And so we must understand that while murder is deserving of death, the Old Testament treats slave traders as deserving of death as well. So much for those who argue that the Bible gives license to the slave industry. See, what these brothers did was utterly deserving of the death penalty. Their their actions are evil and they know it. And from this day on, they live under the condemnation of God. Again, they need a savior. And the man they just sold is going to be that for them in the future. It's, It's a crazy story. But then again, that's who Jesus is. See, we nailed him to a cross and he in return turned out to be our savior. It's called marvelous grace. You know, one more matter before we move on. You know, when Cain killed Abel, God said to him, your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And in Job 16, verse 18, when Job's suffering and he feels death can't be that far off, he says, O earth, cover not my blood and let my cry find no resting place. And in Isaiah 26, verse 21, Isaiah prophesies about a day that's going to come. So listen to what he says. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. It's a horrifying thought for evildoers. All the evil that is now concealed on this earth will in the end be disclosed on this earth. Well, in the meantime, after the evil deed of selling their brother to slavers is over, Reuben suddenly comes back. He sees the boys gone. His plan of rescuing his brother is coming to nothing. So let's continue on in our text, Genesis 37, 31 to 36. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Well, it seems ironic that Jacob, at one time had deceived his own father by wearing clothing that would make him appear like his brother in the presence of his blind father. See, way back then, Jacob wanted to steal his father's blessing. And here we are so many years later that Jacob's sons now also take a piece of clothing and they deceive their own father. But but this time, the brothers want to make sure that they don't fall under their father's curse. And of course, like before, it works. Or does it? Given that Isaiah says that a day is coming when the earth will no longer conceal spilled blood, but reveal it, it seems to me that the blood on Joseph's coat is going to testify before God as a witness of the crimes against their brother. And the point is simple. We may deceive our parents. We may even deceive our culture and deceive the world, but we will not deceive God. The blood of our crimes will cry out from the ground, and the sins we have committed will never be covered. 
But in the immediate, the deception, of course, works. Jacob, or Israel, believes now that his son has been torn to pieces by wild animals, and and the brothers must have prepared themselves for this period of mourning. They knew their father would weep deeply. And so it turns out their father weeps. But as we're going to find out when we come to the end of our story, years and years will pass, and Jacob never stops weeping. He moves from being a man of hope to being a man of sorrow. And as the brothers then watch their father grow old, they watch a man who grows old with a sorrow that never, ever leaves his life. Jacob will weep for his son every single year. I think then that when most of us sin against someone else, we anticipate there's going to be some collateral damage. But who can anticipate the real cost of sin or the the damage that really comes? When we meet the brothers much later, it turns out that they too will live the rest of their lives under the shadow of this very crime. Sin always has consequences. No matter how hard we try to contain the damages, it always leaks out. It's going to leave an everlasting result, far more severe than we had ever imagined. It may seem great to get rid of someone because that suits our purposes, but then we can't get rid of our sin. And Jacob anticipates that when he goes down to Sheol, he's going to die in sorrow. You see, he doesn't anticipate ever having joy in this life again. And in the meantime, while that's going on, God is watching over Joseph. He sold as a slave into the house of the captain of the guard under none other than Pharaoh himself. God is watching out for his chosen instrument. Now, when we began, we began with a question. Am I my brother's keeper? Well then, what if you despise your brother? Are you even then his keeper? Genesis 37 gives a resounding answer, yes. God demands it of you. John, should I really be concerned uh, about my actions and the impact it has on others? After all, it, it's my life. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, everyone says it's my life. And of course, uh, the, the godly man or woman says, you know, my life is not my own. It belongs to my heavenly father. He gave me life and he also has demands on my life. So, you know, I guess we can never say as believers, it's my life. Uh, and, uh, you know, clearly, according to Scripture, I am my brother's keeper. I am to respond in such a way to my brother that blesses their lives. That is God's mission for me on earth. So I am accountable and will stand before God and give an account for how my actions have impacted the life of another or the life of many others. So that's uh, God's call on all of our lives. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Unseen Hand of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. We're so grateful for all of our listeners right across this beautiful country. And if you'd like to become a part of the team of Back to the Bible Canada, Well, this month, we'd like to invite you to become a monthly partner or also to participate in our special match campaign this month. So for every dollar you give towards the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again or In Doubt, another dollar will be given up to $50,000, expanding our opportunity to minister God's Word across Canada and beyond. If you've been listening and perhaps you've never taken the opportunity to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada before, you know what? This just might be the perfect time. Join us in our $50,000 match campaign in October or become a monthly partner. Call us today at one 800 
1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or donate securely online back to the Bible.ca.